Hi everyone, welcome to Frankly, the energy podcast for founders. I'm your host, Yvonne Clark, where I'll be dealing it straight to you from entrepreneurs who have scaled and failed, investors who are passionate and seen it all, and leading tech voices that are looking to build moonshots to change the way we live. Welcome back to another episode of Frankly, and we're going to have a really interesting conversation today that is going to potentially go from everything from blockchain and space to what does it mean to hire a person at the beginning of an experimentation cycle when you're building out new technology. That is going to be fascinating, particularly knowing my guest, kind of Christine Moy, I'll allow her to introduce herself in a moment, but just hoping that everybody has enjoyed the tech franklies that Tom Gray has been hosting for the last few weeks and months. Certainly there's been some really interesting insights across the Launchpad portfolio, across technology areas, one of those being blockchain, and we certainly have a blockchain expert here today. So it's Siobhan Clark here, operating partner for Launchpad with another incredible guest in terms of how do you take ideas and put those into scale in a very different capacity. So without any kind of shortage of time, perhaps Christine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about how we got connected. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. Uh, you know, just by way of introduction, uh, I lead JP Morgan's global blockchain team, and I am responsible for developing and driving the adoption of blockchain technology across the entire firm. Uh, our team has delivered several production-grade platforms, uh, including you know, a new tradable product, Intraday Repo, which actually uses JP Morgan coin, which is now live and is transacting billions of collateral and cash per day, in addition to the Link Network, which I also run on a day-to-day -day basis and is one of the largest blockchain-based bank networks in the world with over 400 global banks signed up and 100 live, basically connected together in a peer-to-peer -peer way to exchange information to enable faster and cheaper payments. So in terms of like my background, I joined JP Morgan more than 18 years ago after college. Um, and it's such a large place. It's quite cool. Like I was able to have five totally different jobs here in that span of time, including a classic investment banking analyst, as an example, and learning the throes of pitch decks and, and client meetings. Also was on the trading floor, specifically in commodities, uh, slinging around like multi-million dollar derivatives, as an example, um, and then also cut my teeth in building enterprise-grade technology and asset management, specifically in our credit risk division. Um, so really proud of my background, following my curiosity and just wanting to learn about the blank spaces that I didn't know about at the bank. But ultimately, that weird combination of all the things that I did ultimately landed me uh, to be one of the first hires uh, at JP Morgan's blockchain program when it was started five years ago. Because, you know, for those of you who are familiar with blockchain and specifically enterprise blockchain, um, you kind of need this weird combination of knowing business and business financial products, being able to engage with clients and senior executive and stakeholders, in addition to having an acute understanding of operational processes on top of using this emerging technology. As part of the program and being the lead of the program in the past five years, have seen a lot of interesting cycles. So back in 2015 and 16, uh, you know, there was, you know, kind of the tag saying of blockchain, not Bitcoin. And this was when enterprise blockchain really emerged into the public consciousness as potential rails to 
you know, enable cost savings and efficiencies and reduce reconciliation between multiple enterprise counterparties. But then, you know, shortly thereafter, there was a, a new phase where then it was Bitcoin, not blockchain in 2017, when Bitcoin had its first mainstream price run up and there was this bonanza of experimentation in capital raising uh, in the form of what are broadly called ICOs, initial coin offerings. And, you know, a fun fact about that is while that extreme capital formation experimentation was happening in the public cryptocurrency space, you know, at JP Morgan, like behind the scenes, we were actually one of the first banks to create a tokenized debt issuance platform. And actually that was the origin story for how we created JP Morgan coin, um, which is US dollar payments on blockchain. It got quiet 2018, 2019. I like to say we slogged it through enterprise blockchain's trough of disillusionment um, because that was when, you know, we were trying to cross the chasm from a ton of prototypes of proof of concepts and actually drive some of these software ideas live and to get them approved like through like a hundred channels, like cyber, legal, compliance, regulatory, everything. And then also suffered through crypto winter on the public cryptocurrency side at the same time. And so quite excited to have survived now in this 2020, uh, 21 cycle where you know now enterprise blockchain has debuted in production at scale um, not only through JP Morgan's projects, but a number of other projects that have long been in the works for multiple years as well, um, along with, again, another cycle of explosive growth in the crypto space uh, with obviously crypto prices being elevated, but more interesting to me, the explosion of activity related to DeFi protocols and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And so, you know, in terms of how we got connected, JP Morgan was actually one of the first banks to embrace public blockchain. So we forked the public Ethereum crypto code base added privacy and performance and made it enterprise grade and then open sourced it to the world uh, under the Quorum project. And at the same time, Yanis Parakis and his team at BP picked up some of those Quorum components and built VACT, several products related to smart energy and supply chain. Separately, BP and JP Morgan were the founding members who actually launched the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance back together back in 2017. And so that's how I got connected to Frankly. BP has been a lead uh, in the space for quite some time with us. What I think is fascinating about what you're saying, kind of Christine, is there's a couple of words in there that really stand out for me. So number one, this this incredible career across kind of 18 years and, and the five years through this this cycle of experimentation into a reality with blockchain itself. And there's a couple of words that you use in there around kind of follow your curiosity. We slugged it through this element of disillusionment. We went through the winter cycle in it in order to be able to come out on this other side with something that's pretty robust. And there's a question for me in all of that, you know, as you've kind of gone through those cycles over the last while, and, and as founders out there or entrepreneurs are kind of building their own businesses, particularly within the climate tech space, and they're building like kind of new technologies, there is an experimentation cycle. So, you know, how do we introduce new technology into new markets? What's been the cycle of that experience? What learning loops through some of those chains or those kind of few years are consistent to, to what you've seen? Is, is there a learning loop within there that's consistent across each time? 
Yeah, certainly. I'd love to share a most recent example. We actually just announced that we launched a blockchain into the intergalactic um, via a few satellites uh, in lower Earth orbit. Um, and basically, uh, the focus of the project is to test the feasibility of a native space payment system. Um, and we actually ended up developing like a whole use case around a satellite-to-satellite -satellite, uh, marketplace that enabled machine-to-machine -machine payments where satellites would be automatically outsourcing tasks to each other because um, they're always moving and they're never in the same space, especially in the lower Earth orbit, exactly. The reason why background for why we did this project is multifold. I mean, like first, I just had a personal goal to ensure JP Morgan was tagged as the first bank in space. Apparently, Budweiser is the first beer in space. So I was like, okay, Budweiser is already in space, then I definitely need to get JP Morgan up there. So that was a personal uh, you know, goal of mine. But more significantly, we wanted to start research and development in this area because we've recognized that the enablers to a broader space economy are being built with speed. I mean, there was a point in time where you weren't talking about space at all. And then suddenly now you've got multiple commercial companies that are focused on making more efficient satellite launches and, and rocket flights. Um, I, I think the International Space Station signed like a contract for space hotel. Um, we're probably still like half a decade and decade too early, but we like, we like doing things <laughs> pretty early around here and at least to start learning and start the experimentation cycle, if you will. But probably most significantly to our on the ground stakeholders who sponsored the project, the rationale also was that we believe that blockchain based rails are going to be the digital payments rails of the future in the terrestrial, like on earth, then it was important for us to understand how this software would operate in a very constrained environment. So through this project, as an example, we had to learn how to run a blockchain network on Raspberry Pi hardware. Um, we had to navigate through the tight bandwidth of satellite to satellite or ground, ground station to satellite communication. And even the idea of, you know, the fact that these satellites are constantly moving in and out of range of each other and, and ground station. I mean, all of the on the ground terrestrial applications are like uh, the fact that there will be uh, economies that will have to rely on, on small Raspberry Pi type devices and may not have the robust hardware that we we have in first world as an example. Or that like even if when you're in the basement of like a shop, a large shopping mall, like you're you're not gonna get um, bandwidth or get like internet signal. But how does your payments digital digital currency payment system work in that environment? So a lot of on the ground learnings as well. For for us, when I think back to when we started, we didn't know anything about space. We didn't know anything about satellites, didn't know anything about hardware on satellites, didn't even know about the capabilities of like what you could send or receive um, by way of signal or data through satellites. And so we were literally the epitome of like flying blind. Um, and this is generally how you feel when you're diving into a new technology or new market. I mean, for us, a new orbit. For us, the way that we organized, and we moved very quickly. I mean, end to end, this project was less than a year, which is something that you would not necessarily expect for a large bank like us, but basically wanted to kick the doors open and make sure like we got through and didn't lose momentum on something so challenging, um, but exciting. For us, it, it was like, you need to figure out what you don't know. You know. I remember us whiteboarding in a room with our partners and basically trying to figure out like, what are the questions? Like, what what is the hardware? Like, what is the communication mode? Like, is it radio? Is it like, and we actually run a blockchain there with basically listing all of our questions, figuring out what we didn't know, and then working to identify, okay, we don't know this, but do we know anyone who might know this? Or do we know anyone who might know someone who might know this and being very thoughtful about just kind of checking off the boxes and sort of 
flipping the unknowns to knowns and basically finding all the different puzzle pieces and then piecing it together into a bigger picture. So in a way you have like a blank space and sometimes that may be overwhelming, but if you kind of break it up into like small pieces and then you kind of take tangible actions towards them, like basically you can take an overwhelming blank slate and convert it into something very tangible, something very doable. That feeling I described of walking into the unknown, not really knowing anything about what we were going to do, obviously most applicable or easy to describe when we're talking about going into space. But in reality, that's actually how we feel every day in our blockchain crypto life, because every day that everything that this program has done has been trying to do something that hasn't been done before. So as an example, like before we were able to get a live value transfer blockchain network up and approved and running across multiple participants, like we didn't know if that was possible because we had never done it before. Like taking the same approach, you just have to take it piece by piece. Or when we want to connect our demand deposit banking account systems to a blockchain and make the blockchain a system of record and have it have the same treatment as any other deposit at JP Morgan Chase Bank NA. Um, this is the JP Morgan coin project. We didn't know if anyone was going to let us do that or how we were going to do that, but you just kind of take it piece by piece. So I guess, I guess from our perspective, it's just about kind of seeing the blank page and sort of writing your own chapter in it. I love this concept of the blank page because there's just so much possibility that kind of breaks into that. But that's not for everybody. Not everybody kind of wants to look at that blank page and say, okay, I'm going to fill that. I'm, I'm going to figure out how to do this. Or as you say, I'm going to figure out what we don't know. And then I'm going to figure out who might know a part of that puzzle piece in order to be able to put that together. This wasn't something that you, you kind of did by yourself, Christine, although it sounds like you could have the potential to kind of do it by yourself. But I know that you spent a lot of time thinking about the talent, the skills, the right kind of behaviors, the right kind of support to be able to bring a team together in, in kind of these experiment cycles. So what is the the key kind of skills or talent or behaviors that enables you to get to the heart of taking don't knows into known knowns and into some kind of execution there? Yeah, and, and definitely could not do any of this without my team. Um, you know, it's actually quite funny because although I'm the lead of the team, sometimes I feel like I'm, the, I'm in the room who like knows the lead. I mean, in a way, it almost works out better that way. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you guys think? And like, we're like, let's like run this out together. And then you basically encourage the thinking of the group and you collect the best thoughts and you kind of take it from there. I, I almost think that if it was positioned differently, where it was like, okay, I know where we're going and this is where we're going, you know, we may not get to the right decisions or we may not find the right right path because each of us have our own perspectives and naturally there are limitations. So when you get a team, an elite team together and you share thoughts and you debate and you discuss, you find the right path together. In terms of how I think about building the team, especially the experimentation cycle, function there is, as I mentioned, primarily being like an investigator, finding each of those pain points, finding those stakeholders and customers, which is key, especially as founder of a company, even if as an entrepreneur or um, at a large company, like finding those key stakeholders and customers and addressing their pain points. From there, figuring out the solution and the right technology. And probably the most important thing, which of course I have to credit Jeff Bezos for in one of his like annual letters that I read and I actually see in life, which is identifying where the opportunity is, even if it's not explicitly mentioned. Because when you talk to people, they never really know what they need and they never really know what they want. They, for the most part, see what's in front of them as innovators, as product people to make that leap for our stakeholders and our customers to say, okay, 
I heard you on X, Y, and Z, then we have to sort of fill in the blanks ourselves because A, they may not know the possibilities of the technology, or maybe they haven't run as many experimental cycles as we have. And again, that blank space that you sort of have to fill for your stakeholders and customers uh, in a way. But the other key attribute that I look for team members specifically in the experimental cycle, but actually in any any cycle is the resilience. And actually, I think this has been a key point for me in my career journey as well, but I've seen it um, in my team members. I mean, inevitably, there are going to be failures. Inevitably, there are going to be challenges, a lot of rejection, a lot of obstacles. Anytime you're doing something new, there's an incredible amount of effort required to pave this new path that hasn't existed before, right? If it was existing, it'd be clear. You'd sort of have to clear the brush yourself, and that's hard. You need that resilience of mind to sort of get through and, and pave that path. Um, you know, I mentioned intellectual curiosity and flexibility. That is definitely key in the experimental cycle. It's about connecting the dots across all the things, all the different things that you've seen. Being open to falling down like deep rabbit holes. We see this, especially in the crypto space. There's so much to learn. You can take the tech angle, you can take a regulatory angle, you can take a commercial like incentive angle. There's just so much to learn. And I think, yeah, at least from a managerial perspective, I think about the experimental cycle is very different from the scaling cycle. And in the scaling cycle, I'd say that the skills and behaviors are, are a little bit different because when you're in the scaling cycle, like essentially what you're just trying to do is grow your solution and customers in the most efficient way possible and the fastest way possible. In this phase, we prioritize more around organization, getting organized, having specific structures and frameworks to ensure that your team that is ever getting larger stays in sync, has communication channels and handover. So a lot around organization and frameworks. I think the key thing for scaling is follow moving the ball forward, uh, even if it's incrementally. So like staying on every client, every follow-up, moving towards the progress that you need, either with the client or if you're adding more product features and functionalities or whatever approvals you might require or whatever technology build you might need to do. On the scaling cycle, you have to have more focus. There's less time to fall into rabbit holes <laughs> and to do like, do you, and if you do too much experimentation, you can actually, and you have a larger team, like you can actually confuse everybody, like where they're not clear on the priorities and the marching orders and sort of where we need to go. And then for the most part, when people get confused, then they get discouraged and productivity is lowered a little bit. However, something that I've needed to balance personally in managing our teams, you can't just put the blinders on though. Like you can't just be like, okay, this is what we're going to build. And now we need to focus on it and not look at anything else. There's constantly a need to take stock in sort of what's going on in the broader ecosystem, take a mark to market to say like, are are we on the right path? Like, do we need to do some experimentation to, you know, make sure that we are not trying to build thing that is based on like a stale version of the world as an example. And, and sometimes that can be painful way. It's almost like you have like a mainline agenda and then you have to fork like an additional agenda to make space for that experimentation and open thought without distracting it and confusing everyone. It's been a learning experience for me and the team for sure. Like the blockchain stuff that we have is all experimental. The operation of the link network is all about scaling right now. So I get to see both. From my perspective, it's a very weird dissonance to realize that a streamlined onboarding process is just as important as figuring out how to then that next new DeFi protocol as an example. It's absolutely at the heart. There's almost like this comparison that we have 
of a, a BP launchpad. Our focus is around scaling kind of digital companies and have an ability to kind of address net zero. So we have a, a broad-based portfolio that are absolutely going through the organization pieces that you're talking about on the scaling, the focus on the customer, they're going out and doing that. But at the same time, they're going through kind of mini experimentation cycles as they continue to evolve the product or the service offering or, or the connection to it. So you've constantly kind of dealing with these these two parts of two parts of the the system trying to get one to, to run faster with many experimentations whilst consistently going back and going are we actually giving the customer what they need not necessarily what they tell us what they want but what they need and we also have this this interesting um kind of component here within launchpad within bp that we also have a separate incubation unit that helps to look at things at a very, very early stage, this, this zero to one journey versus the scaling that we do with the portfolio and launchpad. And I think that's a really interesting space to maybe go into, into next. You know, with, with your team, Christine, and, and certainly with Launchpad, you know, we're, we're part of a bigger ecosystem where we're part of this large kind of component, JP Morgan, BP. We also exist within this global ecosystem. So what challenge, frustration, and in some cases, advantage does that provide? For our part, kind of think of ourselves as fintech at a large global bank. In all cases, it's almost like we get the best of both, but then we also get the worst of both <laughs> worlds. The advantages uh, are clear um, in, for example, we have uh, the resources, the subject matter expertise, but for example, for resources that we have, the requirements are significant and almost incommensurate. So it's like, even if you have that advantage of having more resources than, you know, say like a bootstrap startup, it's like everything that we're doing is like significantly more expensive because the way that we build software here at the bank is you have like some prototypes and you have some MVPs, but then when you make the call to say like, okay, we're going to make this real, it's got to go live. It has to be done at scale. So it's like, you're going from like zero to millions immediately. It's not like, oh, let's uh, get client validation, client one, client two, and like build incrementally from there. It's like from like zero to hundreds, like have to, or if not thousands need to be ready for that, especially given our globally regulated status. It's not like you can just build the software and say like, great, right, now it works and let's go ahead and do it. It's like, you have to get all of the regulatory and legal compliance approvals, cyber approvals. Like you have to run a lot of rigors around here. Um, um, in order to get something live. It's not just about the technology. In fact, the technology we always say is the easiest part, the least of it. Um, it's more about the surrounding um, infrastructure that we need to navigate. And sometimes it, it, it definitely feels like a drag. But what we've learned is, for example, like at the Link Network, we have an application that uh, named Confirm that enables you to validate account ownership and status of a payment before you actually make a payment in order to prevent fraudulent payments or to um, prevent missed payments that may occur due to like an account number typo or account status change or whatever. Um, we allow you to do it on a global basis. Now, in order to build this application, now the technology only took a few weeks. Like it was quite simple um, based on underlying platform infrastructure we'd already gotten live a couple of years ago as part of the link network, um, just deploying new code libraries and new smart contracts. Um, very easy. But 
as a way to like, in order to actually make this thing real, we had to do a jurisdiction by jurisdiction analysis of data privacy laws around the world. And then this took almost a year. Of course, at the time, it was like such a drag. I was like, oh God, like, why are we doing this? Like, like, are you serious? Do we actually have to do this? And now when we face off with the other global banks that are part of the link network that are participating in Confirm, we can confidently say our approach is sound. You will be fine. This is good. Reviewed like every country's like data privacy rules when we are confident that our approach works. I don't think any like, you know, bootstrap startup is going to be able to invest that amount of time and resources the way that we can. It positions us to reach deeper into the system and address some of the tougher, more stubborn challenges in the industry. It's actually enabled us to scale very quickly. Interesting. I mean, we, we've covered everything from kind of um, payment systems and machine-to-machine kind of payments, handoffs in satellites in space in five to 10 years to, you know, kind of the scaling through the link um, network to talent and, and kind of these creation things. And one of the things that we try and do in this podcast is, you know, we're, we're encouraging kind of like finders, for investors, for other stuff to you're out there exploring ways to address net zero exploring ways to change the world and and giving them some takeaways from people that have kind of been on incredible journeys and 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 enabling them to make a difference and i was going to ask you i mean a couple of observations from from what we've talked about and, and maybe see from you you know some some takeaways that you would recommend for others that are going through creating big things or scaling big things maybe when they're starting very much at the idea piece and there are a couple of words that you use time and time again that I that I hear across those networks. The one is curiosity, somebody following that curiosity and understanding what it is that you don't know and then figuring out, you know, curious to see who, who would know that, who might know this in order to be able to help. The second thing that I hear is this, this deep idea of resiliency. To do something that has never been done before, there will be failures, there will be challenges, there will be rejections crafting a new path or or filling in the pages of a blank sheet of paper can be daunting and will be fraught with different challenges along that way but having a deep resiliency to go after that and then the third thing is or maybe it's just being prepared to know that actually at times this is just going to feel a bit messy and a bit frustrating and the third thing I heard which I think is vitally vitally important is if you're working with something that is a larger player within the ecosystem, you know, as, as kind of we talked about with JP Morgan, um, with, with BP here, how do you leverage that? And I think you say something really important about the ability to go deeper into the system to really figure out some of the tougher challenges that are in there and our responsibility in, in terms of supporting the broader ecosystem to do that. And I think it's really interesting the way that, that you guys have open sourced, um, open sourced some of the networks you've got. That, that's incredible. But maybe talk us a little bit about, you know, what would be your takeaways or your recommendations for any of our listeners, for people that are taking these big ideas and enable them to scale to make a difference in the world? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with your observations. And in fact, when I'm recruiting and it's always like a tight market for blockchain crypto people, um, mostly because that hasn't existed very long and it's just competitive. But as you mentioned, like when I look for people to train, because it's hard to find organically find a lot of people with existing experience, 
I am optimizing specifically for people that demonstrate intellectual curiosity, demonstrate resilience. Um, and you know, the third aspect uh, I think is really important is um, impact. Wherever they have been and whatever they're doing, even if it's not blockchain, um, that they've actually made an impact in their current role, in their current team. What is that? How did they drive that? Those are sort of the key attributes that I, for, and I think about that are important. I think the other key thing to note is when you reach that pivot point uh, from experimentation to scaling, and as we mentioned, sometimes it happens in parallel, just acknowledging that it's a different set of prioritized behaviors. You know, like the mantra that I have for the team um, is focus, follow through and precise problem solving. I think those are the key attributes for scaling. Um, you really need to you know, have your eye on the prize and move the ball forward, even if it's incremental, um, even if it's not exciting, that's how you're you know, gonna win. Operating as a part of a larger ecosystem, you know, I think the key thing is to realize that the source of your biggest frustration can be your biggest differentiator. Uh, <laughs> assuming you survive it, right? So like your frustration, your challenge, um, you know, if you're able to overcome it, that ends up in a, in a way becoming your moat because if it was challenging for you, it's going to be challenging for others, but not, uh, not everyone else is going to be able to make it through like you can. Having that attitude as the challenges are coming um, can help you, you know, navigate through and, and, and find success because essentially you'll take it as a requirement as part of the success. You know what, Christine, I, th I think it is the frustration is your biggest advantage and it's almost like if you don't have a situation where there's something you, you're trying to overcome from a frustration point of view and the ability to turn that into your mode then maybe you just start solving something that's big enough <laughs> as an issue exactly um, exactly yeah that, that, I mean that's what makes it fascinating it's what what brings both of us into doing new things that have never been done before it's just that frustration you know everybody always says enjoy the process right it's it's like our biggest source of joy yeah go on then bring it on we love to see that because figuring out how to solve that means we're just going to be very different on the other side of it right now that I've made it through a couple cycles my new saying to myself is I'm trying to make the impossible possible I mean I'm just going to own it and I think founders and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs out there I think you can relate to that as well you're trying to make the impossible possible and on that point, Christine, I think that's the perfect note to finish on for this Frankly podcast. It's been incredible kind of hearing all of the, well, not just stories, but your experiences, those cycles, the curiosity, the the ambition. It's almost like we're curating this group of uh, all the people that want to make the impossible possible. And that's just an exciting way to live.